Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week we will continue our Clash of Orders mini-series. We have been talking to various intellectuals and experts to learn more about how the concept of order is defined in by different global powers. Last week we talked with Fyodor Lukyanov about the Russian understanding of order. And today I'm really thrilled to welcome Vali Nasser, who's going to tell us more about how Iranians are thinking about order. Vali Nasser is the Majid Kaduri Professor of International Affairs and Middle Eastern Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center, but he's also author of a whole series of brilliant books uh, about the Middle East, looking both at some of the the major uh, foreign policy questions which the US faces in the region, but also has really done a a great job of of bringing to the fore some of the the kind of fault lines uh, within the region and some of the big ideas which uh, shape a lot of the politics and the the conflicts in the Middle East. Vali, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So as you know, um, I've been going through sort of five big questions about order with each of the people that I've spoken to on the on the podcast and really very grateful to you for helping our listeners understand how the political elites in Iran uh, and the kind of intellectual elites are, are thinking uh, about these questions. So the first big question we, we uh, talk about when we look into the question of order is in fact the opposite. It's about disorder. Um, and I've been trying to understand what the, the top five threats to order are now and in the near future in the minds of the elites of the places that we've been looking at. So from an Iranian perspective, what do you think the, the big threats to order are? Well, I think uh, the Iranians view uh, the, great, the greatest threat to them is, is an American order. Uh, largely because the uh, Iranian revolution immediately after its birth confronted uh, an, a concerted effort by its neighbors and the United States to contain its, uh, its revolution, prevent it from spreading, uh, dictating a, a future for the Middle East. And over the past four decades, the Islamic Republic essentially has grown up in an environment of feeling threatened by uh, American presence and the American-led Middle East order at times when the United States first invaded Iraq or was in Afghanistan or when it sought to uh, curtail Iran's influence in the region. And at other times, it has been elbowing its way against that order. Uh, in other words, if Iran is seeking uh, uh, influence in the Arab world, if it's seeking uh, to have particular kinds of relations with clients, proxies, governments in the region, it views the United States, uh, the United States international economic domination and the United States led Middle East order alliances with Iran's neighbors, etc., as essentially threatening and, and containing it. So, so I think for them, there is an order outside uh, connected to the international liberal order, but they view that order essentially as threatening to them. They want to seek a different kind of an order. So the US would be number one, the, the great Satan and the order that it's created. 
what are the other things that uh, are worrying? I mean, uh, from what you were saying, it sounds like some of the regional powers like Saudi and uh, Israel and other players are, are seen as subsections of that American challenge. Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I think the Iranians view that the Arab threat around them after the defeat of Iraq um, in the hands of the United States in, in, in early 1990s containment of Saddam Hussein and then the removal of the Iraqi government and then the dissolution of political order in Iraq essentially has removed a, a real serious Arab threat to Iraq. The larger Arab countries of, uh, of uh, say, Egypt are not bordering on Iran. Iraq is uh, completely now weakened and Syria is, uh, is, is mired in civil war. And Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, etc., have a great deal of financial capabilities to, to uh, contain Iran uh, or to com combat Iran. But militarily and in terms of population and heft, uh, without, they, they're not able to really pose a threat to Iran without uh, United States support. Iran relations with Turkey has at times been that of frenemies. They are friends. They do a lot of trade with, to, together. They sometimes see eye to eye on some issues like their support of Qatar during the blockade of that country. But they are also rivals, as we see in Syria and periodically in Iraq. Iran's relations with Israel is, is now the, the, the most tense in the region, and Israel clearly has uh, both conventional and nuclear and technological capabilities to do serious damage to Iran. But I think Iranians see Israel essentially as the crux of the, of the American order in the region that is arrayed against them. So they're not thinking of Israel as if they are in a world in which there is no American military, diplomatic, economic support for a Middle East order that is designed to contain Iran. So Israel right now is the greatest, if you would, actual challenge Iran has to face, but, but it's not, Israel is not the basis of a regional order. Israel is merely the most capable and the most serious threat within that order. But I think the Iranians would figure that if there was no order, if the United States, for instance, truly and permanently left the region, that then Israel on its own would be more manageable by Iran than when Israel has the full backing of the United States and US military presence in the region. And I would, I would finish with this, uh, with saying that even if Iranians think that Israel were to attack Iran militarily, because Israel is a smaller country and doesn't border on Iran, that Israel can start a war with Iran, but then it's not able to finish or quickly conclude a war with Iran. Rather, Israel can start a war with Iran that would very quickly bring the United States into a war with Iran. So all roads essentially goes back to the kind of relationship that emerged between Iran and the United States right after the revolution, taking up the hostages and that whole melee of early revolutionary years that the United States has since then viewed Iran as quote unquote, a rogue actor that has to be contained, defanged, put in its box, if not more. And that the Iranians have viewed the United States as a, as a protean and, and permanent enemy that will never be reconciled with the revolution and uh, must be extricated from the region for Iran to sort of realize its ambitions. It's very interesting. If you look at the debates in the Arab world, they very much 
talk about a post-American Middle East and you look at the ways that Israel and, and Saudi are hedging um, uh, when it comes to, to Ukraine and Russia and, 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 and the relationships they're building with China. But it sounds from your perspective that, that Iran doesn't live in a post-American Middle East. Well, no, because the Americans have not really gone yet. I mean, only a few years back, uh, Iran and the United States came very close to actual direct military confrontation when the United States uh, killed uh, the commander of a, a commander of the Iran's Revolutionary Guard, General Soleimani. Iranians attacked U.S. bases in Iraq. Uh, the, the issue of Iran's nuclear program is 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 hot on the table. It's the most prominent issue for the United States in the Middle East currently. So yes, the Iranians are seeing a dwindling of American interest in the region. It's very difficult to think that the United States can give the Middle East the kind of attention he gave the Middle East a decade or, or two decades ago when its focus is now on China, when it uh, is, has to deal with the sudden uh, crisis in Ukraine over the last year, and when its own domestic politics is, is much more fraught and there's a stronger non-interventionist uh, wind blowing in the United States on both sides of the aisle. But, uh, you know, first of all, Iran's strategy over 40 years has been now focused on, on this anti-Americanism, not just as rhetoric of the revolution, but as objective of yeah. Iran's regional strategy. And it's very difficult for countries to just shift their strategies. That's going to take time. Uh, and in some ways, the way Iran looks at the United States is not that different than the way the Russians and the Chinese look at the United States in their yeah. region. We should move on to the, the next question, which is the sort of uh, the Iranian ideas of, of order. But just before we do that, you've been talking in, in very kind of, uh, you know, classic kind of geostrategic terms about other states being the threats to order. To what, to what extent are you know, either domestic unrest, of which there's quite a lot at the moment, or, you know, the technological revolution and the way that that is changing the information order around Iran or climate change or things like that seen as, as kind of challenges to to order in Iran or to the, the kind of model of political economy that, that the country has. There are serious challenges, and at least in the mind of Iran's uh, uh, leaders, these are interconnected. They, they don't see a technological challenge. I mean, Iran has a digital economy. It has highly accomplished technology sector. They're capable of building drones that can help Russia in, in the war with Ukraine. They're a very connected country uh, in that sense. So they're not lagging in terms of technology. But they, they are not able to either use their technology to gain revenue for the country or to get full advantage of technology outside. The domestic issue is, is, is pretty important. I mean, you obviously have a big, bloated public sector country that uh, is ideological. It's a theocracy. Those sets of things are, are, are basically catching up with the regime in Iran, but also in their mind, some of the problems they face are also consequences of the kind of total war that they have been engaged in against the United States, that all the resources of the country have gone to maintaining Iran's position in the region, despite American, Arab, Israeli push against it, that um, this, the level of sanctions on Iran clearly has accentuated the domestic, economic, and political tensions in the country. At least that's the way Iran's leadership sees it. And the, the, Iran is facing some very serious climate issues, particularly water shortages, which it needs outside technology to address. 
But at the same time, Iran also has trying as a way of trying to combat the containment has has uh, uh, overemphasized domestic food security, which means that it is it is trying to invest too much in producing its own food rather than tr- on on importing the food for fear that sanctions can impact food security. But it hasn't necessarily managed all of these things very well. Even though Iran does very well in information technology, the core technology of the country, like uh, oil industry, refineries, technology for climate, etc., cetera, uh, cannot be uh, imported into the country because of the geostrategic environment that Iran is in. So I- Iran right now, at this moment, in these past five, six years and five, six years going forward, is in a vortex in which the four decades of its regional geostrategy, the way it has sought order and, and, and tried to dismantle the American order, is, is having the kind of impact on its domestic politics, economy, climate, water situation that is creating new problems for it. And so the domestic and the international are coming together around these sets of issues. So you described the biggest threat to order at the moment as as the existence of a of, of an American order, an all-encompassing order, which is kind of constraining Iran in all sorts of different ways and undermining it. Um, when the Iranian elites think about the kind of future of order, do they have a, a particular model in mind about what kind of order they'd like to achieve? Well, uh, that's much more vague, uh, at least in ways in which they debated. They, they, would like, uh, they would like the United States not to be in the region or not to be the organizing principle in the region. In the absence of the United States, they see Iran as a much greater player, much larger player in the region. Maybe the way China sees itself in the Pacific, if the United States was not there organizing all the states from Japan to, to ASEAN countries uh, in ways that they could stand up to China. So Iran sees itself as heir to a great civilization, even though it's an Islamic country, that kind of nationalist view of Iranian superiority, historical legacy, etc., still per- permeates uh, in the country. And, and they believe that they're not allowed to uh, uh, play the prominent role in the region uh, that they deserve. So they see a region in which the balance of power will shift much more in Iran's direction and that the countries around Iran would be more Iran's near abroad rather than Iran's adversaries or rivals. And that Iran's influence in the region uh, would be much more on, would not just be military, but also much more political, cultural, economic. Uh, and the like. So it's a vision of of a regional great power that that sort of is the is the is the is the way in which I would say if they were to describe what's over the horizon, that's the way they would see it. That Iran would actually be shaping this order much more than than the United States and its allies. As you say, you've got these two very interesting conceptual sources on which Iranians can draw either the kind of you know, civilizational histories of, of Persia going back, uh, you know, millennia, or uh, more recently, the idea of, of Iran as a revolutionary state the, uh, and the, the impact of the Islamic revolution. When I went to, I remember uh, going to Tehran 10 or 15 years ago, and I was given a, a thick book on the conceptual and theoretical aspects of the Islamic revolution of Iran and its impact on international relations. Are are there particular concepts which come out of those different traditions, which shape a different way of thinking about about order? 
I think earlier in the revolution, the sort of a view of Iran being the leader of the Islamic world, and a particular sort of a revolutionary political Islamic world that, that is the uh, sort of flag bearer of anti-imperialism, sort of heir to the new left ideologies of, of the 1960s and 70s was much more uh, pervasive. Uh, but I think over time, like, like as, as, as it happened also with communist ideology in the Soviet Union and China, ideology has sank into the, into the sort of mold of nationalism. So yes, the rhetoric of the state is still Islamic. Uh, the country is still a theocracy, which is an anachronism in the, in the modern time period and, and presents significant uh, hindrances to Iran acting as a normal state in the international order. But I think it's much more the vision of a great Iran now, a, a great power, one which is now um, realizes its full ambitions under the leadership of the clergy, that is sort of a driving power there. So Iran, in a way, yes, it's an Islamist country, but Islamic ideology explains Iranian behavior less and the kind of ultranationalism and uh, anti-American global order uh, posturing that we also see in China and, and in Russia. In, in Russia, for example, they've been going through a civilizational turn. And, you know, that in, in many ways is a kind of anti-Westphalian view because they, they think of yep. Russia as a sort of civilization with a gross, you know, they go to Schmidt and, and other consources and think about the idea of a gross realm for their, for their civilization. If you look at Iranian foreign policy in, in recent times, you know, a lot of its power has come from looking beyond the nation and thinking about Iran as a protector of, of Shia across the region. And, um, you know, a lot, it, it's both, I think been part of the purpose of the of Iranian foreign policy, but also one of the most powerful tools of Iranian foreign policy to work with proxies uh, right across the region. Is that purely tactical, or does that stem from a different way of thinking about how power should be organised and how international order should work? I, I think both. Uh, I, I mean, there is a level at which uh, there is a tactical uh, benefit here. In other words, if you're going to or, uh, to have a big say in Lebanon. And organizing militia there, uh, that kind of reliance on the Shia uh, relationship between Tehran and, and, and Hezbollah is, is, is something uh, that is both makes sense in terms of the ideology of the revolution. In fact, that relationship was born very early after the revolution, but it also is, is, is militarily and tacti tactically beneficial to them. And then they're playing the same card in Iraq as well. It is less the idea that all Shias will be, will be now merged into one Shia entity in the, in the region, and more that Iranians would, would use these Shia relationships and the anxieties that Shias face in Arab countries living among Sunnis to basically create, uh, 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 you know, pockets of power, influence, military capability for Iran uh, behind the, the the wall of containment that has been built uh, uh, around it. But at the same time, I, I think it's important to note that that the way Iran looked at uh, this sort of uh, Shia relationship from the very beginning was not purely in spiritual terms. It was not not actually in, in spiritual terms. It was very much in, in sort of anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, anti-American terms. 
you know, it was Khomeini, uh, the founder of Iranian revolution, saw uh, Shias basically as the vanguard force within Islam of, of raising the banner of anti-imperialism, that Islam as a world civilization would finally sort of achieve what leftists in the 1960s, 70s, 80s were incapable of, which is to dismantle the, the, the American order in the world. And, and so that's very much built in when you, where you see Iranians having these relationships from Pakistan to Lebanon. It's not with, you know, just purely cultural religious relationships, but it's really with organizations that they have set up or they have allied with who are like-minded in this kind of anti-imperialist, anti-American, anti-regional order posture. And then finally, I would say that in all circumstances, Sometimes the tactics that you use become, be, become basically the main drivers of the way that you see the world. So if Iran could not buy weapons on the international market uh, when it was at war with Iraq or years after, and it ended up needing these proxies essentially as substitutes for a credible conventional weapon, weaponry, that then it's the view that its view on the region would gradually be driven by that military necessity. Uh, so the Iranians have treated Hezbollah almost like a missile system sitting on Israel's borders. So it has offensive and defensive deterrence and threatening capabilities that would that basically is part of the balance of power between uh, uh, Iran and Israel. Now, if that if that if Hezbollah becomes that important to your to to managing your hostility with Israel, then your worldview on the region and order has to be such to justify that relationship and that approach to projecting power in the region. So the third question is about the idea of, of the rules-based order. To what extent A do Iranian elites think that there is a rule-based order um, and to what extent do rules feature in their ideas for, um, for, for a kind of future order which they're striving towards? I mean, first of all, they do think there is a rule-based order out there, but that the rules-based order is set up against them, that there's no benefit for them in that rules-based order and the rules of the game are only applied to keep them down. And so uh, they don't see it as a fair base, rules-based order. And that's why they only partake in it uh, periodically. Uh, and this goes back to the Iran-Iraq war, for instance, where the, the, uh, rightly or wrongly, the United Nations never stipulated which country invaded which, or that use of chemical weapons against Iranian soldiers during the uh, Iran-Iraq war was largely ignored by the international community. Uh, Saddam was only chastised for use of chemical weapons when he used it against his own Kurdish civilians, not against Iranians. So in the mindset of Iran's leaders, the international, international law is not blind. It's not applied uniformly regardless of who you are. There are serious uh, rules that govern the international order, but they think those rules are only for, for countries that the United States, Europeans, etc., view as allies and therefore um, apply to them, that more often than not, rules are used against Iran, whether it's sanctions, whether it's uh, application of international law. So uh, Iran has a very 
this current government in Iran has a very complicated relationship with the United Nations, with, with international agreements. Even right now, the, the, this is an, a subject of big debate in Iran, the participation in non-proliferation treaty or collaboration with International Atomic Energy Association, uh, the IAEA, the UN Atomic Watchdog Agency, is hotly debated because because of exactly this conflicted view of whether uh, the rules, they should participate in this or whether the rules are always used against them or not. So that brings me to the, the fourth question, which is about some of the big concepts in people's ideas about order. Often, you know, they, these debates revolve around notions such as power, freedom, justice. How are those big concepts seen and defined um, within an Iranian context? Are there other important terms which uh, are seen as constitutive of order? It's a very good point. I think for the for general, for a lot of Iranian intellectuals and, and many Iranian public, uh, the operative word is, is, is freedom rather than... Um, freedom means basically freedom from authoritarian rules of their own state and freedom to be part of the international community. There is a disconnect now between the desires and aspirations of large segments of the Iranian public and the views of their leaders, which is still a legacy of, of the revolution, revolution years. For the Iranian state, I think the operative uh, uh, term is not freedom, it's liberation. This is still a leftover of old ideological view of, of, um, that, that, that the revolution had at its birth. And when they talk about justice, uh, I mean, the popu population in Iran, of course, means justice uh, in terms of rule of law in their daily lives, freedom, political freedoms, economic freedoms. But for the Iranian state, uh, justice is largely that uh, as, as a nation state, as a Westphalian, in a Westphalian system, are they treated as uh, separate from, from the other, I don't know, 169 countries? Are they subjected to a different set of rules? And then they also point to routinely to Palestinian rights or other sets of issues in order to say that the American, uh, the United States is biased in its application of, uh, of, of justice. So the Iranians demand justice internationally, but also use it as a cudgel to, to criticize the, the American-led international order. But one thing that, that has evolved over the past four decades in Iran is that the uniformity of view across the leadership and the public on what is freedom, what is liberation, what is justice, where the country should go, has diverged in very dramatic ways. That the population and a segment of Iranian intellectuals um, are, are now looking at at, at, uh, at these issues very differently, and they want to find a way for Iran to be part of the international order, part of the regional order as it is, rather than to be continuously fighting against it. And that comes out in all kinds of political disgruntlements within Iran uh, about the fact that, the, aside from whether people actually like the uh, theocracy and the clergy or not, I think a lot, a lot of Iranians are beginning to question uh, the cost that this continuous push, push against the international order is, is imposing on the country and whether they want to pay for it or not, or whether it actually makes sense or not. So this brings me to, to the kind of last question, which is to think about what are the key events or periods which shape understandings about today's order. 
you've mentioned a few kind of events in Iran's history over the last few years. Obviously, the revolution in 79 was a, a big moment. Uh, the Iraq war, uh, no doubt, would be another one. But what are the other sort of events which shape Iranian understandings of, of order? In the US and the UK, it's always 1938. Everything's always seen through the prism of Munich. Are there tropes in Iran which are being used to to understand the the current disorder in which Iran is finding itself? So I would point to three things in addition to the ones that you mentioned. Uh, I, I think the war, the, the Iran-Iraq war, looms very large in the mindset of Iran's leadership. Uh, because we're st- still we're, we're, we have a generation at the top that actually fought in that war and remembers that that decade of war against Iraq and, and all the lessons it had about uh, national security, international order, etc. And uh, and I and I personally think that the Iran-Iraq war is uh, has shaped the Iranian state and its leadership's thinking far more profoundly than the revolution itself uh, did. Just before we go on from that, what do you think the key lessons they took from that are? Well, the key lessons they took is 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 that they're alone in the world, that that they need to rely on their own in order to in order to protect the country's national security, and they were able to do so because they remained vigilant to their ideology, uh, and uh, uh, because they were uh, able to build resilience and rely on their own resources. And ultimately, that nobody is, is going to come to Iran's help if it's attacked, if it's uh, subjected to, to uh, pressure, that the country has to, has to be self-reliant. I mean, these are the things they took away. And, and the mindset of the deep state in Iran, this is very, very well entrenched. The second issue, which I think is both a prolonged issue, but, uh, but then there's an event, is, is actually the issue of sanctions and the nuclear deal. You know, the sanctions are not just something that has been imposed as as a single event, although the the maximum pressure sanctions since 2018 is a particularly unique period. But but Iran's domestic politics, economics, view of the world, view of the international order has been shaped over uh, literally four decades of sanctions that have become increasingly tightened over time. So Iran today is the most sanctioned country in the world at some level. And we are talking about even adding more sanctions because of the way they're cracking down on protesters and human rights issue today. So it's impossible to think that a country that basically plods along, survives, still lashes out periodically, is not impacted, if you would, by, by uh, the way it re- looks at sanctions as unfair, unjust, uh, a burden going forward. And the sanctions are also related very much to, to the whole ordeal of the nuclear deal, that Eventually, Iran did agree to talk about its nuclear program. It signed a, an agreement with the United States and um, European powers, China and, and Russia, and, and uh, it did implement its part, as it was vouchsafed by uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency. But uh, then the United States withdraw unilaterally from that deal, again, proving the fact that uh, the rules-based international order does not apply when, when the United States chooses that it shouldn't. And that has become a very deep scar uh, in, in, the, in the mindset of Iran's leaders. And it's uh, about how do they should understand this. So that I think is very important. And for that least foreseeable future, the legacy 
of uh, the nuclear deal and and the sanctions that followed it will, will loom very large for so long as there is the Islamic Republic. And finally, I would say we're speaking at a time of major protests in Iran. And I think, although we're not past it yet to sort of be able to look back, but I do think it's a watershed moment because it's a moment at which a significant portion of Iran's public, its future generation, a lot of its intellectuals, even some among its leaders, have really seriously questioned uh, the, the cost and wisdom of the of four decades of Iran's foreign policy and regional policy. And uh, maybe they don't have a vision of where they're going, but they, they know they don't like what they're living under. And they don't like the isolation, the economic pressure, the kind of vigilance that the, that the state is imposing on society for ideological purity, all in the name of, uh, of, of Iran continuing this war with the United States and war with the U.S.-led order. Uh, so, so I think that, that we will look back at this moment as, as very consequential. So it, this isn't the first time that young Iranians who obviously were not alive during the uh, revolution, were not alive even during the Iran-Iraq war, have, have taken to the streets um, and uh, that's led to, to lots of talk in the West of Twitter revolutions and other things like that. Do you think that this time is fundamentally different? Are the children going to eat the revolution? I, I think it's different because of the scope uh, and because this, these young people who started this protest didn't come out for any particular political agenda. They basically came out and in, in defiance of the set of rules, orders, ideological uh, policing that they have to live under. I mean, all, all uh, sort of circled around the issue of hijab, but it's uh, not just hijab. It's basically policing every aspect of their behavior and their lives. And that is justified in Iran increasingly uh, in terms of this is the ideology of the state. It's necessary. It must be reinforced because we are at conflict uh, with the world, just like we were at conflict with Iraq. And, and we should remain vigilant and protective of the Islamic Republic. And if the, if the young people are basically saying no to that, they're basically questioning a, a very fundamental tenet of Iran's national security. They're not just challenging Iran's religious orthodoxy. They're also challenging a tenet of national, national security. But then they open the door for a host of other Iranians to, to protest or at least express their grievances from labor who are haven't been paid for a long time, for uh, people who have all sorts of other grievances, all of which uh, you know, goes back to the idea that, that Iran's foreign policy has been managed as a, way of just, uh, as a way of sustaining this war with the United States. Uh, in other words, um, Iran is suffering um, economically, it's, it's, it's suffering in terms of pollution, it's suffering in terms of water scarcity, it's suffering in terms of many, many different things, and all of which goes back to not only mismanagement, corruption, and those sorts of things that we see in other third world countries, but in the eyes of the Iranian public, it is all a consequence of, uh, of a particular way in which uh, the, the, uh, the government in Iran has organized Iranian society and has imposed uh, costs on it in order to sustain a foreign policy. So the anti-regime rhetoric in Iran, at some level, is also challenging you know, the fun foundational 
uh, way Iranians have thought about order and disorder and the future of Iran over the past 40 years and the way in which the Islamic Republic has shaped this. And do you think that these protests are ones which are calling on on Iran to to join the the liberal international order to to become you know part of the the world which um the US has been trying to to defend um and to or, or do they share a lot of these sort of post colonial and other insp- instincts and 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 suspicion of the west which um which the regime does well, even sharing the the suspicions of the West does not mean that you could not have participated in the global order as much as the Chinese, Russians, Arabs, etc. do. Yeah. I mean, the level of Iran's isolation is no longer accepted by the, the broad cross-section of Iranians. Even in 1998, when Iran, first time after 20 years, qualified for the World Cup, the city of Tehran erupted into 48 hours of celebration, like Iran was joining the world. The tremendous amount of enthusiasm that Iranians showed for um, the, the, the nuclear deal—they they voted with, you know, uh, with the, for the president in Iran who promised he would bring the deal uh, to fruition—was was that they wanted to be part of the world. They wanted to be able to travel. They wanted to be able to buy Western goods. They wanted to have regular trade, and even the the, the, the dejection and the disaffection they felt towards President Trump for taking that away all suggest that the Iranians want a much more normal engagement with the, with the international liberal order. They may have criticisms of it. They may want to make changes to it. But the level of Iran's isolation now is, is now up to challenge inside Iran. I mean, fundamentally, these young kids have opened the door to challenging the, 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 the way in which the Islamic Republic has viewed its role in the region, its role with the United, vis-a-vis the United States. And, and I think that debate, we don't know how it goes, I think is much more pervasive than just about hijab. And that, to me, is what makes this moment a watershed moment in terms of what, what we're talking about today. Thank you very much, Vali. It's been fascinating talking to you. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our, our bookshelf segment. Obviously, we'll put down links to some of the brilliant books that you've written. But are, are there any books or articles which you think people uh, should think about reading if they want to go deeper into the topics that we've been talking about for the last half hour? Well, uh, you know, one book at least I've read recently, which, which I really liked. It's not it's not about contemporary period, but it really does go to some of the mindset of, of Iranians and the way they see their history. Is, is a fantastic book by the historian uh, Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, and it's called Persians, the Age of Great Kings. Uh, it's a highly accessible, brilliantly written uh, book uh, about Iran's imperial legacy before the rise of Islam, and, but, but which, is, which sounds like a long time ago. But it does, it does explain just the way that the Iranians view themselves, view their uh, role in the region. And I'm not talking about the Islamic Republic, I'm talking about Iranians as a whole, uh, the way that they, they see the legacy of history and, and why it matters so much and why their, their, their place in the world matters so much to them. Great. Fantastic. So we'll put a link up to that as well as to some of your books on our website, uh, ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on and subscribe 
to the whole of the Clash of Orders miniseries and, and to the world in 30 minutes more generally. And while you are there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help bring other people to the pod. But for now, <laughs> from Bali Nasser and myself, Mark Lennon, it's goodbye. The researcher of this episode is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm-hmm.